Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives. Today we are going to hear about the book Wifedom by Anna Fund Funder and the misogyny in George Orwell's 1984. And it's going to be discussed by Sheila Jeffries and me, Joe Brew. We're going to start hearing about wifedom with uh, Sheila Jeffries, and then I'm going to join in uh, and talk about uh, 1984. So welcome everybody who's here and welcome Sheila and over to you. Thanks, Joe. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, lovely to be with you again. Now, uh, today, I'm going to introduce a book I, I, I really love, and it was published last year. It's by the Australian author Anna Funder, and entitled Wifedom, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life. It's about the first wife of the British literary icon, George Orwell, otherwise known as Eric Blair. Um, can we have the next slide so we have a photo? There we are. This is um, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, also known as Eileen Orwell or Eileen Blair. Um, it is, as the title indicates, about the condition of being a wife, particularly being a wife to an iconic male author. Uh, it's a condition, of course, of household slavery and um, unrecognized support to a man's writing career and being an inspiration to his work, which will never be recognized. It's a radical feminist biography stroke novel, I would say. It's a kind of combination of the two, because there's very little information about Eileen. And so Anna Funda has to make up sections of the novel as she imagines it would have been. Now I'll say a little bit about uh, Orwell to begin. I have to admit that I don't know very much about Orwell um, because once I became a feminist, I didn't really read men's work of this kind, not out of interest, not unless I needed to, to criticize it or something. And that I became a feminist 50 years ago. So I've not really um, had much to do with Orwell. Um, so I'm unlikely to know anything about famous men from that time, really. Fortunately, Jo has read some Orwell, and she will talk about the book 1984 and how it relates to wifedom today. Uh, for those who know little of Orwell, I should explain a few facts. Um, he was an English novelist and essayist. He was born in 1903 and died in 1950 of tuberculosis. He was born in India. He was the son of a lower-ranking colonial administrator and took up a role in the police in Burma when he was a young man. He developed a critical eye on British imperialism and the workings of power and class in general. And that's why he's been seen as a sort of hero of the left. He was and is hugely admired for his morality and conscience, both in his lifetime and today. Indeed, I see even now feminists send around on social media quotes from him with photos of him. And that puzzles me greatly. What is extraordinary about this book and made me want to introduce it to you today is that it completely overturns his reputation, this British hero and so much admired figure, and makes it clear what a nasty, exploitative, sexually violent, woman-hating man he was. The book is in a line of many by feminists which demonstrate the extent to which the great men of literature owe a huge amount to their wives or female muses and in many cases could not have achieved their success without these women. But the women are rarely mentioned. We know nothing of them until feminists seek them out and show their contributions. This book is in that line, but more than any others, it shows the execrable nature of the man in question. I have never heard of any author previously who was as vile as Orwell was. Now we'll move on to um, Anna Funder. Um, Anna needs an introduction in her own right because she's a marvelous writer. She's Australian. She wrote two marvelous books before Wifedom. Her first book, Stasi Land, was published in Australia in 2002. It is a fascinating nonfiction book about what life was like for those who opposed the communist regime in East Germany after the Second World War. 
Uh, there was then a gap before her second major book, a novel called All That I Am, published in 2011, which is historical fiction about left-wing Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany to the UK in the 1930s. Her focus has generally been on the period between and just after the wars. Wifedom looks at the same period and it combines her two strengths, history and fiction. But Wifedom is specifically and furiously feminist in a way that her previous books were not. I do recommend the previous books because she's a wonderful writer and they're absolutely fascinating books. Now, the origin of the book, uh, Funder explains, lies in her decision to research into Orwell, someone whom she hugely admired. Uh, she was puzzled to find that Orwell's wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, was invisible in both his writings and in the accounts of his biographers, and he had many biographers. Then she found in the archive six letters written by Eileen to her best friend, Nora, lengthy letters, I think they must have been, which suggested that Eileen was very interesting indeed and well worth being discovered. Because there were really only six letters and very occasional mentions to indicate who Eileen was and what her history had been, Funder was forced to invent a new way of writing a biography. She found out all she could from interviews with those who had known her or known those who had known her, but also she was forced to invent and one problem with the book is that it's not always entirely clear what a section is based upon uh, when it's not clearly from a letter or from the words of commentators, old friends, or their offspring. There are no references. It's a new way of writing and has drawn some furious criticism, mostly from male fans of Orwell. Um, so, and in fact, she is going to have to change the book and the second edition is gonna to have to have changes because these men were so angry with her. As well, of course, it has drawn praise for its inventiveness. How do you write a, a biography of somebody about whom extremely little is known? Now, um, Eileen O'Shaughnessy um, was from an Irish background. She was born in 1905. She died in 1945 at 39. She met Orwell at a party in 1935 and married him in 1936 at the age of 31. She'd been to Oxford and then worked at a number of jobs. She was a very talented woman going to Oxford at the time was pretty unusual. Um, she nursed literary ambitions of her own, which were then entirely subordinated between the service, beneath the service of the man whose talents she was doubtless in awe of at the time, which is Orwell. Can we have the next slide? Sure. Um, this um, bit uh, at the top here is from a letter um, in which um, she, she explained that um, Eric had decided that he mustn't let his work be interrupted and complained bitterly when we'd been married a week that he'd only done two good days work out of seven. Indeed, he doesn't seem from the material in the book to have any, any particular interest in her at all, but this was in the first week of their marriage. So you can get a sense of uh, who he was. Um, now, there's um, another quote from Orwell just before his death, which tells you what he thought about women. And he talks about the problems of women. It's one was their incorrigible dirtiness and untidiness. The other was their terrible devouring sexuality. He really does, although he constantly tried to rape women and tried to have sex with women, um, he does not find them attractive. It seems there was a, a real problem with his having to engage in sexual activity with them. And um, it's been su suggested that this might be because his main interest was sex with boys and men. Um, now, within six months of marrying, uh, he cheerfully left his wife behind and went to Spain, as many thousands of British men did, to fight on the side of the Republicans against the fascists in the Civil War. Eileen wanted to go and to have, have such an adventure, but he did not expect that, and he left her behind. She got fed up and she did set off for Spain uh, later on. Um, can we have the next slide? Uh, this is Funder's comment. 
um, about him. Um, women disgust him. He disgusts himself. He's paranoid, feeling he's been tricked by a politico-sexual conspiracy of filthy women, imposing a false picture of themselves on the world. He sees women as wives in terms of what they do for him or demand of him. Not enough cleaning, too much sex. How was it then for her? My first guess, too much cleaning and not enough or not good enough sex. Now, one of the things that is um, clear about Orwell is that he used uh, brothels and used women and, and girls in prostitution whenever he was able to do that, which made me think that presumably his colleagues and men around him were all doing the same thing, although we don't hear very much of that in all the hagiographies about these wonderful men. Um, can we have um, the next slide, Joe? Um, in his youth, he was a colonial policeman in Burma and Thunder uh, comments about him. Orwell frequented the waterfront brothels of Mole Ming, where an impoverished teacher had set up with three of her sixth form, um, which is kind of surprising, really, for a man of such extraordinary morality and wonderful political sense and, and so on and so on. Um, now, let's go on to um, the contribution that she made to him, the what women do generally for male writers, which, of course, is something that men have never had to do for women. Like I've never come across the idea of men um, servicing women writers to allow them to um, show their talents and so on. Um, can we have the next slide? Um, she, this is Funder again. She says, for this bolstering of male sexuality and of the male imagination to make the work, it is crucial that the supports to it remain invisible. A high wire act is not awe-inspiring if you can see the wires. Invisible and unacknowledged, a wife is the practical and often intellectual wiring that allows the act to soar. And for it to be truly astonishing, the wires and the wife need to be erased both at the time and then over time. And it, it is truly extraordinary, and Funder is obviously very horrified by this, the extent to which Eileen was written out of and simply not in um, either the biographies or, of course, um, Orwell's work. She is truly invisible. Um, we can take that slide down now. Now, Let's have a, a look at his uh, sexuality uh, again for a moment. Um, throughout his life um, that under records, he was involved in sexually aggressing amongst uh, against women. And the first documented attempted rape, uh, as Funder explains, it was of his teenage love. And she wrote to him about it because a lot of these women were quite sturdy and did object, and a lot of them got away, of course. She wrote to him telling him of her disgust and shock that he should try and force her to let him make love to her. So this was an early start. When he was seeing Eileen, but before he was married to her, uh, he was sleeping with another woman and dating another woman who actually would not be penetrated by him. So, and the big question, and it's a question which is asked throughout the book, because he's doing this behavior throughout, is whether Eileen knew um, what he was doing. Um, and the, the biographers tend to say, well, she must have known, she must have allowed it, they must have had an arrangement, but we don't know anything like that. Now, the married life of Orwell and Eileen starts in a country cottage with no facilities, very isolated. It doesn't have things like obviously electricity and running water and inside toilet or anything of that kind. Um, and as a part, she had to do all of the housework. And uh, parts of the household that, that she comments upon, of course, are shopping, cooking, typing up manuscripts, checking proofs correspondence with agents and so on. 
She also had to clean the house. She had to, for instance, clean up the privy, the outside toilet, when the cesspool backed up. I mean, obviously, you couldn't expect um, an exalted and wonderful author to do anything of that kind. Now, before she married him, Eileen had been financially independent. Uh, but now, as soon as she does marry him, she works for Orwell for free and does all of these things. But she's no longer able to work for money. And now he was, and I think it's worth saying, extremely homophobic. And though many of his friends considered that he suppressed his own interest in men and boys, um, they also considered that he probably indulged at Eton because he went to Eton. And he would, when he was staying in Kipps at night on hiking trips, I, I didn't know about this one, but apparently Kipps were the sort of sheds that hikers would stay in when they were hiking in in the UK. Presumably they were only men. Um, and as Fonda tells us, the men would engage in sexual practice in the Kipps on their hikes. So probably the hikes were quite exciting things for them to do. Now, I hadn't realized we'd just go on to thinking about um, Spain and what they did in Spain. I hadn't realized that the Spanish revolutionaries collectivized the brothels. Apparently, Orwell does say that in Homage to Catalonia. Um, and that's um, an interesting thought. So the Spanish revolutionaries had reasons for being very excited about being revolutionaries. They got access to the use of women that had not been um, straightforward for them before if they didn't have a lot of money. Now, at the front, because he went to the front to fight as well as wanting to write about as a journalist about the war, he was ridiculously reckless um, and he endangered his colleagues. Um, he was constantly putting his head above the parapet of the trench and putting himself in danger. And he once shot a rat in the trench, making a huge reverberation that caused uh, all of those in the trench to be shot at. So there was an extraordinary arrogance about him where he didn't give a damn about the lives of his colleagues, let alone himself. Now, um, Orwell's account of his time at um, the front in homage to Catalonia um, never names Eileen. He does mention his wife, but he doesn't ever give her a name. Um, because Eileen decided she wouldn't stay in the dreadful cottage in the country where she was also expected to look after the goat and the chickens and, and so on and so on. Um, and she came to Barcelona where she worked for the revolution and she collected and sent supplies to the troops. She worked on the manuscripts that Orwell sent her and she worked at the, 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 the offices of the independent Labour Party or the organization that Orwell was fighting for. Um, he, Orwell, uh, proceeded to get shot because he was carried on being extremely reckless. Could we have the next slide? Um, so he's lit a cigarette. He's regaling the boys in the trenches with stories of his exploits in the brothels of Paris, of how cheap it was actually to install the little trollop in his hotel. The bullet goes clean through his neck. Uh, the, sec the section about prostitution there, she must have got the, the exact information from somewhere because she's got little trollop in inverted commas, which she doesn't necessarily give information about where she got that information, but I'm sure that's what he, uh, there's information in the book to suggest that he constantly talked about what he did with prostituted girls and women. Unfortunately, it was possible to get him to hospital and he survived and he was nursed um, then um, by Eileen. Um, could we have the next slide? Now, Funda says, um, I still puzzled over how I could have read Homage to Catalonia twice before and never understood she was there. Eileen had worked at the political headquarters, visited him at the front, cared for him when wounded, saved Orwell's manuscript, saved the passports, saved Orwell from almost certain arrest at the hotel and somehow got the visas to save them all. So Eileen's contribution was huge 
in Spain and uh, very much more useful than his because she wasn't constantly trying to get shot and endangering everybody that she was with. Um, but uh, he doesn't mention her. He mentions his wife, but he never mentions her. Uh, can we take that one down, Joe? Now, um, I'll, I'll just talk about his uh, tuberculosis for a while and what, they had, what happened to them around all of that. Now, when he got back to the UK, he spent six months in a sanatorium for his TB. He never admits that he has TB to anybody because this would mean admitting he endangers those around him, I suppose. So he calls it all sorts of other things. On one occasion, when Eileen cannot make the five-hour journey to visit him in the sanatorium, she sends a friend, Lydia, in her stead. Orwell puts his arm around Lydia and kisses her, um, though she tries to get away. Thunder calls this correctly and disgustingly a tubercular tongue kiss. Now, Lydia didn't want to have anything to do with him at all, but found it very difficult to know how to reject him. She found him disgusting, and he was a, apparently a very, very ugly man, as well as being tubercular and aggressive and so on. He was six foot four, very thin and cadaverous looking, and he was regularly having hemorrhages from his TB, but he was still pursuing any women who he could possibly get alone with him at any time, pretty much. Now, Orwell is advised to go to a warm place to help with what he will not admit is TB. So they go to Mo Morocco for several months. And Funda describes an occasion when uh, Eileen's function as an inspiration for his writing is clear. He reads a, a bit of a letter she's writing to Nora about the passage of a corpse along a street in Marrakesh. And Orwell um, simply reproduces it in one of his books, but with much less skill and writes about it less interestingly than she's doing in her letter. Now, Orwell, um, Eileen herself is sick. She's getting more and more sick with what she calls at this point cysts and later tumours. It's never entirely clear in the book what is wrong with her, but she is very sick. Uh, she goes to a hospital with a fever and migraines and extended bleeding. And this gradually gets worse. And in the end, she will die as a result of this illness. Um, Orwell uh, seems to have very little interest in or care of her. Eileen, um, in, in Morocco, uh, they go up to the Atlas Mountains for a break. And Orwell fancies the young girls there who have tattooed chins. And uh, he tells Eileen that he wants one and she has to wait in the inn room while he goes out to buy the use of the girl. Um, Funda observes that when he returns to the hotel, there are no bathrooms and only one bed, which makes it as disgusting as it would have been for poor Eileen. Though Funda imagines exactly how this incident took place, she knows that it did because Orwell told the wife of a male friend all about it and probably indicated that he had permission from Eileen. In all the biographies of Orwell, it is assumed that Eileen did not mind. To accept anything else would be to tarnish the reputation of the hero. Uh, he described the bodies of the Moroccan girls he used to his friend Harold Acton, a gay writer and scholar. So we do know that this took place. Now let's think about Eileen's illness. In 1940 and 1941, Eileen is working full-time in government jobs, like the Ministry of Food, for instance. She's grieving for her beloved brother, who was a doctor and was killed in the war. Her illness is getting more serious. She's ill for months at a time and goes to be tested in hospitals. The doctors are unable to diagnose her illness, but do know that she needs to put on a lot of weight because she's very weak. Often Eileen, though, would have to go into work hungry because Orwell would eat all the rations. He never thought that this could be a problem. He would simply eat whatever he wanted to that was in the house and Eileen would have no food. Meanwhile, Eileen, uh, uh, sorry, meanwhile, Orwell ignores or neglects Eileen as is his custom. But he does pursue quite a number of other women doing what they and Funda call pouncing on them. He pounces on women. 
there's no time today to describe all Orwell's attempts to sexually use Eileen's friends. Bunda suggests that in some cases, it might have been an attempt to separate these friends from Eileen. So in other words, deliberately cruel. One woman who accepts his pouncing, called Inez, is sexually used by him several times a week for 10 years. They go back to Orwell's flat, for instance, while Eileen is at work. And of course, Orwell's biographers say that Eileen must have accepted that. Orwell himself was working at the BBC for part of this time and having affairs with or pouncing on women there. He called the BBC a mixture of a whore shop and a lunatic asylum. And of course, he knew all about whore shops. So that was his view of the women that he pounced upon at the BBC. Orwell um, decided, let's think about her influence, his, his, her influence um, upon him. Uh, Orwell decided to write an essay against Stalin for betraying the Russian Revolution and establishing a new autocracy. Eileen had a big influence uh, about on him then um, because she thought that was a bad idea. And she persuaded him instead to write a novel, Animal Farm. The book, says Funda, has a perfect structure and is in many ways quite unlike his other work. His friends at the time were astonished at how different it was and how much better he had become as a writer. One of his friends explained that Orwell discussed it with Eileen sequence by sequence, laughing about it in bed. But it does seem very likely that that book owes a great deal to Eileen. And of course, that is one of his most famous books. Then, um, towards the end of 1944, Orwell persuades Eileen very much against her wishes and her judgment that they should adopt a baby boy. Orwell had little to do with it. Eileen had just got another job. Orwell left before the adoption proceedings were even finalized because he wanted to be in Berlin to see the Allied victory in the war take effect and report upon it. So the boy was to be the job of um, Eileen. Let's move on to thinking about how she died. She's continuing to get even more ill. She has what she's now it's being called tumours and she suffers very serious bleeding. She's advised by her doctors in London that she should have a hysterectomy, but to do this in London with a respected doctor and to stay in hospital for a month beforehand to build herself up because she's uh, and, and so anemic and underweight. And it would be dangerous to have the surgery without doing this. Eileen is worried that this would cost too much and that she is not worth it. She writes in a letter to Nora that, I really don't think I'm worth the money. It is before the NHS was founded in 1948 and she has to pay for her own care. And Eileen is mostly staying at this time at a house in the North England with her sister-in-law and both of their children, the boy that was adopted and her sister-in-law's child. Orwell is nowhere to be seen and shows no care towards her or the child he has ordered in. The surgery is urgent because she's becoming more and more bloodless week by week. An indication of Orwell's lack of care were his plans for their future. Eileen was aware that when Orwell eventually returned from his jollifications in Berlin, he had plans for their future, which she knew were impossible and which showed no concern at all for her or the child. He wanted to go and live in a farmhouse on an island off the far west coast of Scotland, which took two days to reach. It was extremely isolated. And in the end, he does do this. After her death, he does go to live there. In her letter to Nora, she tries to excuse Orwell's absence and lack of any concern, as well as try to justify spending any money on herself to stay alive. Because, as she says, she's not worth it. As Funda says, it is a terrible letter. She decides to have the surgery she needs with a friend of her brother's, Dr. Harvey Evers, because that will be much cheaper and quicker, probably to save money. She travels to the hospital where she's to have surgery, remember she's very weak, on the bus. She's extremely ill and alone. Orwell at this time is in Paris, probably using the brothels and still writing to one of his lovers. Not to Eileen, though. She's not getting much information. 
Eileen writes him a letter about all the arrangements she's made in case she dies. She clearly believes that she may die, such as arrangements for the adopted child who is still a toddler. The letter was found by her bedside at her death in 1945. She had decided to have the operation on the cheek and she died during the surgery while her womb was suspended outside her body. The hospital says she died because of allergy to the anesthetic. It does seem likely she died because of a long chapter of neglect and in the end, the choice of an incompetent but cheap surgeon. After Eileen's death, Orwell did come back to the UK and searched around for a wife to fulfill the role that Eileen had vacated. He proceeded to pounce on a number of women um, or proposition them out of the blue. And eventually he did find a woman to marry him. He needed someone to handle his affairs and his legacy after his death. Um, he died in 1950. Okay, so I'll um, stop there and we and hand over to Joe. Or um, I'm just thinking. I've I've got both of us on now, so we could have a you know just I I'll, I'll just add a couple of yes. bits about Please the do. book. Please and do. then go on to 1984. So um, <clears throat> I read the book as well. Thanks, Sheila, for recommending it. Um, it's fantastic. And I would recommend everybody read it. Try and get the first version, because as Sheila says, the estate of George Orwell has objected to parts of the, the first edition of Wifedom. And so there are going to be changes made. So if you can get it now, um, you'll get what... Funder actually wanted to say, or Funder wanted to say, rather than what all the bits that get taken out. And I could totally understand why they want to take lots out, because it really undermines this idea that he's a moral, great, revolutionary, sort of anti-totalitarian. Um, I, uh, I think... Um, I've got a couple of criticisms of the book. I think it's fantastic, and everybody who is... It should read it. One is totally worth reading. It's amazing. Um, and it's easy to read and really interesting. Um, but I think it comes under the category of what I think is a dead end book in terms of feminism, because what Funder does to women of ideas, as Dale Spender calls them, feminists who've come up with feminist theory, is she does to women of ideas, feminists of ideas, what um, Orwell did to his wife, which is she just pretends they're not there. It's it, Her analysis, her feminist analysis, appears with no support. There is no sisterhood. She doesn't reference. She references loads of Orwell's biographies, loads of men. She talks about lots of male theorists. They're scattered all the way through the book. The only feminists that she mentions are Frederick Engels, yeah, who's a man who, uh, you know, talks about the historic defeat of the female sex, fair enough, good, de Beauvoir and Virginia Woolf. And what annoys me about Funder's analysis is that she is spot on picking out the key points about patriarchy and about wifedom from those three uh, writers about feminist theory, but then that's it. And then it's as if nothing else has happened. And there are lots and lots of really interesting ideas in the book that Funders uh, comes up with, but you get the impression that she's made it all up herself. She's very sort of chatty and like, I'm in the kitchen with my kids. And and I, I suddenly, at one stage she says, I suddenly got the insight that wifedom is, um, is unfair or a woman doing all the work supporting a man and the patriarch is like this and this I sort of think why doesn't she mention all the recent writing and particularly Sheila's book which is very very relevant um or lots of your books Sheila but you know there's there's loads of feminist stuff that she doesn't mention so that really irritates me um because she's doing uh, it's like we, the radical feminists, are the wives that are not mentioned, the theoretical wives. We're coming up with the theory. And these nice mainstream feminists are not, it's not acceptable to put, to reference, particularly Sheila, your work in, in her book. The other thing, <laughs> although I think it's a great book, 
I think, I suspect, I'll put money on this, is this will be her one sortie into feminism, like quite a lot of the the women, um, like uh, Pauls, um, who came up with it, you know, the the uh, Reign of the Phallus, that fantastic book about, about Greece. I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is the one brilliant flair, like amazingly brilliant book, and then she retreats back into not really being... particularly feminist because it it burns her it might burn her well let's see it'd be great if she does more and she's it it, it is great but i'm you can see i'm quite annoyed with the book um yeah so i'll go on to i'll go on now and um tell talk about george orwell's 1984 so let's see if i can manage to get that um Right, so 1984, I have actually read, and I guess uh, lots of us have read it. Um, as Sheila said, this was written after um, uh, the, uh, the death of um, Orwell's wife. Now, I've forgotten her name. Edith. I leave. I don't know. So, so there we are. It's so bad, I've forgotten it. Right, so it's written after her death, but not that long after her death. And it's also, it, many people agree that it was, well, certainly the name of it was based upon the poem, the dystopian poem that Eileen wrote. So the idea for it, and probably a lot of, a, a lot of discussion had happened before Eileen died, um, uh sort of put, helped in the conception of it now well, he did write it on his own so in the start and i'm going to tell you about some of the misogyny in it uh at the start during the two minutes of hate against goldstein who's the revolutionary leader against big brother and against ingsoc the party winston so he winston's working in an office and they're all doing the two minutes of hate and they're meant they're looking at a screen meant to be hating Goldstein and um, he switches his hatred. So Winston is the protagonist, he's the, the person, the main character in the book. He switches his hatred to a female colleague he's seen but never spoken to. He fantasizes about tying the girl. So already this is a 27 year old woman, but he calls her a girl. He And this is very close to the beginning of the book, to a post, raping her and killing her. So Orwell writes, vivid, beautiful hallucinations flashed through his mind. He would flog her to death with a rubber truncheon. He would tie her naked to a stake and shoot her full of arrows like St. Sebastian. He would ravish her and cut her throat at the moment of climax. And then Orwell carries on. Better than before, moreover, he realised why, why it was that he hated her. He hated her because she was young and pretty and sexless, because he wanted to go to bed with her and would never do so, because her round, sweet, supple waist, which seemed to ask you to encircle it with your arm, there was only an odious scarlet sash, aggressive symbol of chastity. So Orwell lays out right at the beginning this sort of rape murder of a young woman and sort of justifies it in saying that she had put up a boundary a barrier to having sex because she's wearing the junior anti-sex league um uh uh sash and what annoys winston but let's think Orwell is expressing this as quite a reasonable, you know, Winston is the hero and has become the model hero of the left and, and anti-totalitarians. What Orwell does is he says that by having this sash, the junior anti-sex league, she's not just refusing sex with Winston herself, but she is... Um, uh agreed this is agreed by the party and by the state and so what is even more annoying is that the society that has ingsoc and and the the party are supporting the idea that young women can be anti-sex and he hates that so that builds up into this idea of well we'll carry on to see what how orwell builds the novel
So he continues to develop Winston's character. Um, and Winston, it says, disliked nearly all women, especially the young and pretty ones. He notices one young woman in the canteen, so this is near the beginning, and remarks on her obsequiousness towards a male who's sitting next to her, saying she had a youthful and rather silly voice. Now, these characterizations of women absolutely run through the whole of 1984. Um, it's just, I mean, it, it, when you start to do a reading of how vilely misogynist he is, and you, say, with a highlighter, did a highlighting of every single bit of misogyny, you see that that actually is the plot. It, 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 it's almost the whole of the plot um, is the misogyny, although people don't talk about it. People just talk about it as being anti-totalitarian. The party was trying to kill the sex instinct, writes Orwell, aware clearly that there are differences between men and women. He adds, as far as women concerned, the party's efforts were largely successful. So, what he sets up, or Will is setting up, is a world where men want to have sex, quite justifiably, and sex is a revolutionary thing. So you can see how he became, uh, that the 1984 becomes very uh, attractive to the left, the let's have lots of sex, let's liberate, and um, liberate that sexual instinct. And um, it, he he's saying that the party, so that's Ingsoc, the Big Brother Party, is against sex, and so he's saying that totalitarian regimes are against sex and are going to stop the sex instinct. Instinct. So we'll we'll see where this how this leads. So added to that, Winston's girlfriend is a role model for young women on the left. So, I mean, a, a horrific role model for young women on the left, but she has functioned um, to show women how they ought to be. She's a fictional character created by all wealth for Winston and left-wing men uh, whose desires reflect their own. So she's 26, she's referred to as a girl. She lived in a hostel with 30 other so-called girls and Julia, the name of the, the um, young woman, shows her allegiance to patriarchy by saying, this is in the always the stink of women, how I hate women. Julia is a perfect woman-hating female for young anti-establishment women to emulate. So the left want women, young women particularly, to read this and be Julia. She'd worked producing porn for the proles. The proles, if you haven't read 1984, are the proletarians, the poor. Um, and started her first so-called love affair, again, this is all Wales words, at the age of 16 with a 60-year-old party member. So Julia can only really have been written by a man as a person. 16-year-old girls don't want illicit sex with men four times their age and certainly wouldn't call it love. She's a clearly a male fantasy made up uh, by men for men. So we're starting to see... Um, what he's doing in 1984. So Winston and Julia end up having sex, which is initiated by Julia. Uh, again, Julia being the fantasy character that's Orwell's created. Now I'll just say here, this does contradict with his, uh, his previous writing and what Sheila's mentioned from Anna Funder's book that Orwell on one level actually didn't want to have sex with women or, you know, found it repulsive. And Funder says that he had a sort of desire to have a lot of uh, sex and stroke, attempted rape or maybe rape um, with women, but he also found them disgusting. Uh, so, the, he, but he, he presents a different sort of ideal of sex in 1984. Um, so before having sex for the first time, Winston tells Julia that he fantasised about raping and killing her. Now, instead of horror and disgust, which should be a normal uh, response by a young woman, Julia laughed delightedly. She, uh, she just laughed delightedly and said, great, that's fine. Um, on finding out that she had had sex with scores of men, Winston was thrilled. And he says, I hate purity. I hate goodness. I don't want any virtue to exist anymore. And then he checks Julia's motives and says, you like doing this? I don't mean simply me, I mean the thing itself. And Julia responds, I adore it. 
And for Winston, that was above all what he wanted to hear. And I found that very interesting that Winston, the character, wanted Julia to like heterosexual sex, the actual act, to love it and to, to adore it. it, it it's it, it's the, in my mind, the, and uh, is the adoration of um, a form of, of oppression. It's adoring this form of sex that creates Julia's subjection. And um and to sort of like as a propaganda tool out to get 1984 out to millions of people i think 30 million copies have been sold it's a fantastic coup for the male left to propagandize and get young women to be like julia to say i love the thing itself um with loads of men so uh, Orwell portrays julia as a, an apolitical hedonist only interested in having this heterosexual heterosexual sex so you're only a rebel from the waist downwards as the politics gets um heavier and julia and winston get hauled in by big brother um winston turns out to be this very deep thinking uh anti-totalitarian and and all these interesting views about the state and about freedom and about being able to have your own ideas of two plus two equals four and actually believe them and say them all of that uh, is winston's but julia is portrayed as having no interest whatsoever in politics and only she's only interested in having lots of sex with lots of men <laughs> it's just so offensive that and 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 he you know he portrays her like that anyway later on winston dreams at one point of julia walking towards him this is when they're both in prison tearing her clothes off he says her gesture overturned a whole culture as though big brother and the party and the thought police would all be swept into nothingness by a single splendid movement of the arm so what happens in 1984 is winston makes julia's her political role is to provide sex and her the um crucial political act for women to do and sweep the total thought thought police into nothingness is to undress for him don't need to say anymore but it's it's outrageous um julia's junior anti-sexual slash sash shows her membership of the party's campaigning anti-sex youth group now it, her anti, her presumed lack of interest was supported by the state. And this is where I think it's even more awful what Orwell does, is he creates a state that we're all, well, we all hate, uh, Big Brother, but the state is utterly on the side um, or against... Um, uh men's sexual freedom so what i well I'll, I'll go on to the next slide i think that um that yeah the message in 1984 is that being anti-sex is part of being totalitarian and being pro-sex is revolutionary and expression of freedom we're meant to identify with winston who fantasized about raping and murdering his female colleague or julia who loved that too and he's showing us the type of freedom left-wing men want and later on we get this well we you get quite a lot about what big brothers like there's a com long conversation at the end of 1984 between winston and o'brien who is big brother really he's the leader of the totalitarian party and o'brien lays out what the party wants. He says, we've cut the ties between men and women. No one dares to trust a wife or a child. And he continues, the sex instinct will be eradicated. Procreation will be an annual formality like the renewal of the ration card. We shall abolish orgasm. Um, what I think is that 1984 has created a uh, a body of sort of known truth, a, a, a common understanding on the left that people, women who don't want sex with men are as bad as Big Brother. They are totalitarian and they are 
uh, fascist. Um, and I, th I think this is one of the reasons. I mean, there are many, many bits that construct this myth that feminists and lesbians or political lesbians or um, those of us trying to put barriers to men's uh, sexual access are uh, are right wing or big brotherish. Uh, I think that he he was a key person in that. And then I've written a subject about that. So if you want to read that article in more detail, um, I'll put it in the chat so you can. Um, and now we let's stop sharing this and go back to Sheila. So, and um, yeah, so Sheila, we've we've I think we've done a whistle stop tour through nineteen eighty four, which you don't you no, didn't have I, to read. If I could just comment on what you've been saying. I mean, I, so, I I'm actually astonished because though I've never read nineteen eighty four or had any interest in reading it. I had absolutely no idea that it was a sort of textbook for the sexual revolution and men on the left, sexual predation upon women as the basis of their revolutionary impulse. I had no idea that this was the case. I thought it was just, you know, a political type of novel of a of a more serious kind. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. And the idea, as women were saying in the chat, that it was taught in schools is horrifying. I had no idea, but no wonder he is loved so much on the left. No wonder, yeah. because he's yeah. a textbook for the sexual use of women, which is the basis of men's sexual freedom. I I also think, you know, for anybody who hasn't read Sheila's uh, book uh, that, that was the basis of your PhD, The Spinster and Her Enemies, um, I think you can situate 1984 exactly as a response to what happened, what the, the, the you know, and it's so interesting reading Funder's book because Funder's book says that George Orwell and Eileen, they had um, suffragette relatives. They knew all about women's liberation. They knew the, the uh, politics. They were, they were just, it was just everybody knew about it. And what he's doing is he's, putting in another argument uh, and, and a quite very sophisticated political argument of why women's barriers to having sexual sex with men as whenever they want it really and violent sex um is totalitarian it, it so I I think it's like it and he he presents 1984 as a dystopia but he's actually presented it as a double dystopia for men because he's saying big brother, is stopping you. He's the one who's stopping you, the good revolutionary men, from getting all the sex you want. Mm. So you need to overthrow the state. And it's it, 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 he doesn't say Big Brother is allied with Big Sister, but that's de facto what happens. And I th I think that explains really a lot why people. Well, it, it's helped. Yeah. And and Georgia in the chat has just it, it said that um, her school that she went to in Islington was called after George Orwell, although the name's now been changed. I mean, how horrifying that this man, such a viciously woman-hating man who made vicious woman-hating the text of the revolution, as it were, should be used in this way and still seen as, he's still seen as a hero. There are feminists still quoting him. I mean, I, I'm actually shocked. I didn't read 1984, but I'm completely shocked by what is in it, I have to say. Um, yeah. And I think Aideen in the in the chat also said, was this book a sort of, you know, a, a pathway into the sexual revolution of the 1960s and uh, 1950s and 60s? And I think certainly that's the case. And as you say, um, in the period when this book was written, there was a huge backlash developing against feminism and against the ideas about feminism. Um, that I write about in Spinter and Her Enemies, the critical ideas that feminists had. So yes, he overturns all of that. And um, something else I just wanted to say in relation to what's um, in the chat, Elaine in the chat um, talks about how, because she obviously knows more about this, this woman, uh, Anna Funda, is that her mother was a feminist and her aunt was actually a 1970s, 80s feminist, just like, uh, me and Elaine, um, and actually ran a, a feminist bookstore. So the fact is, Anna was brought up in her mother's milk was feminism, if you like. 
So it's surprising that in her first two books, books are excellent books, she doesn't mention feminism and there's no feminism in it at all. But suddenly she's got back on track um, with this book and there is feminism in it. But as you say, she should perhaps have mentioned that she grew up with feminism, that it is the basis of the way she's able to look at the world, even though she didn't mention it before this book. So I'm a little bit more critical now of the absences from this book. I have well, to what I think is that, you know, that it, it's fine, her saying all this stuff, but what a book should be is be a, a journey. And as you read it, you then go on and read other things like Mary Daly and your books, Sheila, but like Gynecology or Pure Lust. I remember reading them the first time and looking at all the references. First time I'd read it, then I'd look at the references, then I'd go and get Diane Culpepper's something of the copper women or Kate Millis or whatever. I'd, I, it was an opening up into hundreds of other books. And it's an acknowledgement of her sisters, which you do in all your books. And I feel that some of these mainstream feminists, what they, they don't want to be tarred with the same brush, do they? They don't want people to uh, go to the back of the book, look at the bibliography and see these living, breathing, thinking, radical feminists now who are, you could actually go and see you talk, for instance, or, you know, why doesn't she do that? Yes, I, I think that is very odd, because often in feminist books, as you say, the the, the notes and the references are a hot, large part of the book and absolutely fascinating. But it's as if her book came from nowhere. It was dropped by the stalk without any influences upon her. And that's clearly, clearly not what happened. <laughs> and... I mean, it. I think it made me want to go back to Dale Spender, Women of Ideas and What Men Have Done to Them, because she's uh, she's done this great uncovering. And, and I think Funda, I suppose the next step would be, if she does write another feminist book, is to actually acknowledge what, what, where she gets some of it. Or make it just more real and say, yeah, say it wasn't her who came up with all of these ideas, Funda, in her kitchen, which it sounds like. No, no. No, no, she was fed it by her female forebears. Um, and Ampara's just been saying in the chat, wasn't 1984 a title of a poem Eileen wrote? Yes, when Eileen was young, before she ever met Orwell, she wrote a lengthy poem called 1984. Um, and this is clearly uh, had an influence on Orwell and he wouldn't have chosen that title without her. So it's just one indication and there are so many of her fundamental influence in creating his body of work. And yet he managed to turn all of that around into vicious misogyny. So it's pretty shocking. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, a, a thing um, I found very infuriating, <laughs> you can see I'm really livid about this, all of this coming up. Um, I think I'm livid with 1984 because I read it and I uh, it basically influenced me to behave more like Julia than any sane woman would have done, young woman would have done. It's just, I, you know, I'm really angry about having ever read 1984 and I'm angry with that. But I'm also very angry about what happened to Eileen. She got a scholarship to Oxford. And what she wanted to do, she did English, and she wanted to be a teacher and to stay at Oxford and do literature and share what she what she found out and live that life. And she didn't get a first, and that stopped her. And she basically just gave up. It crushed her and destroyed her. And I'm sort of really angry about that because it's like these little things that particularly in those days they knew, the person who was marking it knew exactly who, so it was her tutors, it was men marking her work, and they stopped her living her own life, and so she couldn't. And or, and and that really, really annoys me, that that happens over and over and over again, and then we see it play out in her, re I mean, it's so sad what she ended up having to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, well, I think we have probably got there. So thank you for telling me all that, Joe. And I'm completely yes. out. I am. Yeah. But it's yeah. absolutely. 
with the biography novel, whatever we're going to call it. Yes. And thank you so much, Sheila, for finding the book. I, th I guess other people might have found it, but I, I am so pleased I've read it. And I think I'll, when, when I don't mind getting angry again, I'll read it again, angry with how bad Orwell was yes. and all the people who enabled him. Before the next edition, which has got the alterations. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 Great. Well, thanks everybody for being here and um, see you all either in the breakout rooms or next week or soon. Okay. Bye then. Bye everyone.